Hi there. This is the podcast designed to lift you up and make you feel better about life in the world of primary care with some free CPD thrown in too. We've got some primary care pearls of wisdom to share with you to make your life easier. Coming up, we're talking about intrauterine systems and how they just got a bit simpler. Diabetes and frailty, how we need all our primary care superpowers across the whole multi-professional team to think about the big picture. Joining with UP, the adult cerebral palsy movement to help us increase our confidence in supporting adults with cerebral palsy. And we ask antidepressants, help or harm, what we can learn from the BBC Panorama documentary. We also have our best intention story and our primary care superheroes to put a smile on your face. But I can't do all this by myself. Who's going to keep me company? I'm Caroline Green. And I'm Nick Kendrew. We're both part of the Red Whale presenting team. Come with us to reignite your passion for primary care. Welcome to the June Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. The Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. And welcome back to the Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. This is June's edition. Hi, Caroline. How are you doing? Hi, Nick. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm just starting to feel the need for that holiday that starts to come on at this point in the summer. But yeah, you're just back from yours, aren't you? Yes, I am very lucky. I've just been away for a couple of weeks. It's the first time I've been away for for that length of time for a very long time. And um, wow, I do feel very much better for it, I have to say. And um, so I was very lucky to to go off to see a couple of Greek islands and um, yes, beautiful beaches and lovely sunshine. Not too hot, just about right. Obviously stayed in the shade and factor 50. Oh. Um, but, <laughs> but beyond that, it was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that sounds absolute bliss. Where are you off to? Nowhere quite as exotic, but we're off to the highlands of Scotland. But it was it was just making me reflect, you know, we all have those uh, behaviours that start to come on when we need a holiday. I'm sure our listeners do. It would be great to know what their big red flags are. But um, I know for me, I definitely start to get irritable and look at my list of jobs to do and think I don't fancy doing any of those. Um, And I know at that point it's time for a holiday. So, yeah. Yeah, everything feels a bit more overwhelming, doesn't it? So it's it's lovely to to be <laughs> able to to have some time away. <laughs> um, and um, I, it's funny how um, some people manage to completely relax and and switch off on holiday. I I was thinking about the podcast whilst I was away, and in fact, I I listened back to the last oh, episode Nick. on the beach in Greece. <laughs> Um, just to, to make sure that all was fine. I'm not sure what I would have done if it wasn't, but, um, <laughs> but the, um, it was interesting when we started the last episode, we talked about the fact that we were released on a Friday. It sounds like we're kind of locked up for the rest of the month, but, um, actually that's we, the episode is released. I should be clear about on a Friday. So that's why we kind of leave yes, it. We, we don't, um, we don't enforce. <laughs> we don't enforce prison any any Redwell team members. They are free and roaming in the community. There may exactly. even be one near you. <laughs> yes, so be very careful out there. Uh, well, I, I recorded the sound effect when I was away of, of a beach, which we might be using a little bit later on. So stay tuned for that. But we've got lots of pearls to talk about as per usual. And these are the pearls that you can sign up for, aren't they, Caroline? They are. There is a link in the show notes as how to sign up. We release one pearl a week all year round, apart from Christmas, and they are completely free. Please do share them with the whole primary care team, GP trainees. We hope you find them useful. Yes. So shall we start with the first one? Yeah. So let's get going with intrauterine systems is our first one. And and I've badged this as the one I'd been waiting for um, because... Our women's health team produced this one hot off the press. The FSRH have made our lives just a little bit easier when it comes to intrauterine systems. And I don't know about you, Nick, but when I was a GP trainee and I was doing my six months obs and gynae job, the marina coil was pretty new and everyone was super excited about it because it completely changed the face of gynaecology. It seemed like this miracle that had reduced the need for lots and lots of women to have to have hysterectomies and sort of fast forward probably more years than I'd like to remember now. (laughs) And we now have five intrauterine systems that are licensed in the UK and things had all got a little bit complicated. So we hope this pearl made things a bit easier. 
Yes, it was interesting that there's now five entry trial systems licensed in the UK. Um, and some of us might not be aware of the fact because most of us will be able to tell you about Myrena. Um, but um, what, what are the new ones that have come through? Okay, so I think it's simplest to think about them in two groups, actually, um, the lower dose devices and the higher dose devices. And the first thing to say is that all intrauterine systems are licensed to use for contraception. So if a woman wants contraception from her coil after watching the Davina documentary, any of the IUS can be used for that. The higher dose ones are slightly more effective when it comes to contraception with a 0.2% failure rate compared with 0.3% the lower dose. So marginal difference there, actually. Yeah, very much. And the advantage of the lower dose is that they are a little bit smaller. And all our coil fitters listening out there will say that for some women, they are a little bit easier to fit. And they're the Kylina and the JDES coils. But then the other group is the higher dose coils and they're Marina, Benilexa and Levocert. And they're all a similar size. And the advantage of the higher dose coils is that they can actually be used for a much wider range of indications. So those three higher dose can, in addition to contraception, be used for the management of heavy menstrual bleeding, for some pelvic pain conditions, dysmenorrhea, and also importantly as a progestogenic component of HRT and for the management of endometrial hyperplasia. And when you talk about the dimensions of the devices, again, it's, it is a marginal difference, isn't it? In that the, the high dose ones, they're 32 millimetres by 32 millimetres, whereby the, the lower dose ones are 28 millimetres by 30 millimetres. But from what you're saying, that marginal difference can make a difference to some women, can't it? Yeah, I think it is. It is a small difference. And, you know, the people fitting coils tend to have their favourite, tend to have their favourite insertion devices. But as a rule, most women can manage either of the groups of coils. So, you know, if you do have a nullip, for example, who needs other things from her IUS, she needs that um, sort of help with heavy menstrual bleeding or dysmenorrhea, there's absolutely no reason why we can't try one of the higher dose coils for her. Okay. And so the the licensing for these, has that changed at all? No. So the, the licensing by the companies that make the coils hasn't changed at all. But what the FSRH have done, based now on quite a long period of real world use, they have said that on a sort of off-license basis, all of the higher IU, dose IUSs can be used in the same way and for the same durations of time. So they've unified it as a single thing that makes it a bit easier to remember. So what they've said is that for women under the age of 45 who are using a higher dose IUS for contraception, once it's been put in, it can stay in for six years. For women over the age of 45 who are just using their IUS for contraception, it can stay in for 10 years. But if they go on and want to use it as the progestogenic component of their HRT, it has to be changed after five years. So whilst it's simpler than it was, it's still not simple. And you might want to red whale it in the article, but at least now it's the same for all three of those higher dose coils. Exactly. And are the, the lower dose coils, um, what, what about their licensing for contraception? Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if they were the same as each other as well? But sadly, they're not. <laughs> so um, Kylina has a five-year licence for contraception and JDES has a three-year licence for contraception. So uh, it, what matters is if we do fit coils within our practice, that we code the time they need to be changed. And of course, that's part of good practice. I'm sure everybody out there is doing that. But yeah, it would be nice if they were the same. But right now, they're still different. Yes. And I noticed that you mentioned Davina earlier on because she obviously yes. had a coil change live in her documentary a few weeks ago. Um, so what did you see that? What did you think of it? Yeah, I did. So overall, 
actually, it was it, the overall message for me as a doctor watching Davina's documentary was that women should be able to choose from a wide range of contraceptives, not just the combined hormonal contraceptive. And actually, Davina, as you say, she she went on and had her coil change live on television to demonstrate to women what the procedure involved and how uncomfortable or not it was. Um, so. I wouldn't be surprised if in primary care we do get more interesting coil fitting and more questions about a wider range of contraception. And I know, Nick, you're talking about this much more extensively on Boggle Docs, aren't you? Yes. So I, I chatted to the, the Redwell Women's Health team, so Lucy Cox and Helen Barnes, about the Davina documentary. We had a really interesting chat. Um, and actually, we talked um, about part of it was the as the we were talking about the Marina coil change with Davina. And what an interesting thing that we discussed is the fact that that it was great that she did it and it showed what it's like, but that's her experience and of course yeah. some people may have a better or worse experience um and and so you know, it, it kind of balances out there's been other media coverage of other famous people who've had problems with coil fitting such as naga manchetti from bbc breakfast so um, yeah. it's it's interesting to show it and the other thing that they they did bring up is is the fact that there was um davina had it done with a, a cervical block which would have made mm. it more comfortable but that isn't offered as a standard in primary care. So we might have patient expectations being slightly different to what it would have been before the documentary. Yes, I think that's really important. It's really variable in NHS care because also, as you say, Davina was having it done privately and she was very transparent about that, but her experience was different. The thing that actually stood out for me is just how important that vocal local, as they call it, you know, the clear explanation of what was going to happen, what it was going to feel like. And Dame Leslie Regan, who was the gynaecologist fitting her coil, did a very good job of explaining and talking her through. And I think that's something that as GPs and as nurses and AMPs who might fit coils, actually, it's a real strength we can bring to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I was watching the whole documentary like a hawk, really, because with some of the past documentaries, they've um, looked at different bits of different studies and stuff and maybe presented it as medical breakthroughs when actually they're small number trials, which are the beginning of something, perhaps, but they're not the medical breakthrough that we thought they would be. So anything that came up like that, I was digging around a bit. So have a listen to the podcast episode because there's a few sort of little revelations in there that you might not have noticed. So so have a listen when you get a chance. (laughs) Okay, so shall we move on to... The next pearl. Yes, yeah, so we're moving to a different phase of life now, and we're going to think about diabetes and frailty. This was the one that made me think. Um, what were your thoughts about this one, Nick? Well, do you know, I really liked this. <laughs> well, I called them, to be honest, but um, the American Diabetes Association guidance came out a little while ago, and yeah. I remember when it came out, it felt like a breath of fresh air, and it felt like we were able to do what we felt we should be doing. Um, and it kind of really struck a nerve with me because I, when I first became a GP, I was um, pretty much straight away turned into the diabetes lead at my previous practice. And I felt this kind of weight of responsibility on my shoulders. And I ah! thought, <laughs> I thought at the time, I really thought, yes. oh my goodness, I need some, all these patients need to have the best HbA1cs possible. They need to be really, really, you know, well looked after, blah, blah, blah. And actually it turns out that for some patients, having a really, really good HbA1c probably isn't very good because, because they're probably being too aggressively managed. And luckily I had a really good um, diabetic nurse specialist that I was working with who could kind of calm me down and say, look, we need to work in the real world. This is what we should be doing. And and this backs up everything she was saying, that she was right all along. Yeah, it's such a relief sometimes, isn't it? Because I'm a child of quaff. I started as a GP trainee in the year that the quaff was introduced and yeah, the flurry of all these nice guidelines. Yeah. And I don't really remember GP before those days, but I do remember going to the coffee room and loving talking to the GPs who did remember those days. And I think Just as you say, this American diabetes guidance around personalised targets and thinking about the individual in front of you gave me that same warm and comfortable feeling that talking to those experienced GPs from the pre-quaff day did and sort of it was like permission not to follow the guidelines, sir. And, you know, I think that's something all of us feel increasingly comfortable with later in our careers but often when you're newly qualified or you're a trainee and you know you deal with that real complexity that we see in primary care of polypharmacy and multimorbidity can be really difficult to know where to start can't it 
Yes, absolutely. And there were so many parallels because when we were talking um, last time about end-of-life care and about how we individualised yeah. tra- treatment at that point in time, it really felt that there were so many parallels here. Um, and um, it's also the thing I, I like about when we talk about pearls like this, it's about the little things that you can notice. Um, and the thing that really sort of jumped out at me was the the fact that um, hypoglycemia, which you know can be quite dramatic when it presents, but it can present maybe more subtly um, in, in frail patients and such as um, more often with dizziness and confusion and visual disturbance, as opposed to what we would all kind of say is the dramatic one when you get palpitations, sweating and tremors and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a really key message for me as well. So basically the whole background behind why the American Diabetic Association brought out this sort of support for a more personalised approach to targets in type 2 diabetes in people who are older and not thinking about them in terms of their age, though, are we, Nick? We're thinking about them in terms of their health status. So, you know, you might be 85, but still running marathons. And if you are and you're, you know, you your targets might be very different from somebody who's 60, but has five different long term conditions and perhaps is living in a residential setting. So it's that framing. But the reason the ADA brought this out was because of the sort of double whammy risks for people who are older and frail in that they have an increased risk of developing hypoglycemia, but they also have an increased impact of that in terms of falls, fractures, admissions, and a risk of cardiovascular events associated with hypos. And we don't know exactly why that is, but it's thought that possibly it's due to sympathetic drive during a hypo, increasing the rupture of things like atherosclerotic plaques. So we do need to think really carefully about our drug choice and also our HbA1c target in those more vulnerable people. And so that's particularly thinking carefully about drugs like sulfonylureas and insulin. And as you say, that other side of the coin, you get that reduced hypo-awareness and that different presentation of hypos that might not be quite so obvious. So both really important factors to consider when we're doing medication reviews and diabetic reviews. And also at the very centre of all of this is is asking the patient what they want, which is something that really is is lovely to see in, in a guideline, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what matters to this person? And it's it's hard at the moment, isn't it? Because I went to um, an NHS confederation conference a couple of weeks ago just to see what that was all like. And there was a huge emphasis on personalised care and shared decision making and health inequalities and population health. And when I say it like that, they sound like buzzwords. And I think it's because right now it's so hard to feel connected to what the realities of having consultations like those are like in a, in a system that's so pressed. And yet at the same time, I don't think there's a single one of us working in primary care who doesn't want to tackle health inequalities or offer really good quality personalised care. It's just the realities of what that looks like. So what I loved about this pearl is it just gave us a few small, really pragmatic things we could do with that person. You know, what do you want? What's important to you? Let's work together. This is it. And I think from what you're saying, you always hit the nail on the head. Or in fact, you did hit the nail on the head in that when when we, we think that we are being talked to with buzzwords, we kind of shut down. Yeah. Whereas actually what we need is somebody to say, this is the way forward. This is what we're going to do to make things better. Um, and so you were talking about shared decision making. And there, are there some tools that can help us with that? Yeah. So um, there's a really great tool that's recently brought out, I think, by the Academic Department of Primary Care in Oxford called GP Evidence. Um, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But basically, it's it's a tool you can use either to help you as a clinician to feel more confident in making brave decisions about medication against NICE guidelines or with patients if it's something they feel comfortable to engage with because what it does is it looks at what is the benefit for this person sat in front of me of this drug. So based on their age, based on their other comorbidities. And of course, we know many of the type of people sat in front of us 
are excluded from trials. There are not randomised control trials that include people either of their age or with their multiple comorbidities or on all of the drugs they're on. So I really like that as a resource because it actually just makes me feel a bit better when I have that hunch I want to stop a drug. And then I can look and think, yeah, the numbers, that that helps. Um, so that's one of the small tools we can use to help. NICE also have a shared decision-making tool around polypharmacy and multimorbidity. And you can find out more about that in our article on polypharmacy. Um, but I think it was just the framework that the ADA put in place of thinking about, you know, what's the right target for HbA1c? What's the right target for blood pressure? And are statins the right thing to be carrying on for this person right now? And then can we talk about that together and make that shared decision? There's a really nice table in the pearl that summarises all the numbers that go behind what I've just said. Brilliant. And of course, this is one of those areas which is great for the whole team to be involved. And we have our primary care pharmacists who are brilliant at this and they're great at, at working with patients to, to get them off drugs that they don't need to be on. So this is an area that we can all work together on, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we'd love to hear if any of you clinical pharmacists working in primary care are listening, do send us um, tips and tricks you've used for good shared decision making and structured medication reviews, because you really are, you know, the experts at that. And we'd love to hear from you and be able to share those on future podcasts. Exactly. So thank you for that. And that is the end of our second poll. Okay, so now it's time to put a smile on your face. And um, we've been asking you to send in your your best intention stories. And that you can probably hear I'm actually smiling already because I, I love this part of the podcast because it really makes me laugh. So, so I'm trying to try not to laugh <laughs> too much. It's the best bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but this story is a real corker. So here we go. So let's press um, the right button. We're going to get the lovely music as well. So here we go. And here we are. I feel like I should bow when we do this next bit. That bit there is a bow, definitely. So here we go. <laughs> to celebrate Pride Month, I decided I would wear my best swishy rainbow skirt to work a few weeks ago. It's beautiful, but long, and perhaps not entirely practical for a day in primary care. I cracked on with my day, and my last patient before lunch was a very dignified older gentleman. You know the sort waistcoat even in the height of summer, um, dressed and pressed and very proper. He was consulting about urinary symptoms and after a brief chat, I offered to take the urine sample he'd brought in. I took the jam jar he proffered and stood up to walk to the sink. Except I didn't. The hem of my skirt had got caught in the wheel of my office chair and when I stood up, my skirt did not come with me. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was in such a hurry, I'd already taken two steps forward. I took the chair with me. It pitched forward and tripped me up, and I fell straight into the old man's lap, spilling the urine sample as I went. He was, of course, entirely gracious about the whole thing, and I was grateful to have my lunch break to um, freshen up. And the learning point is, don't let your fabulous skirt get caught in the wheel of your chair, and always make sure the jam jar is fully closed before standing up. <laughs> well, there we are. <laughs> so um, if, you, if you have a best intention story, then please do send that in. And you can either send it in um, on social media or you can also email us and all the links are in the show notes as well. So many clothes related traumas in primary care, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. What's going to be next? <laughs> oh, so, I have huge have got... empathy for that story as somebody who yes. got their fabulous skirt stuck in her bike wheel at the weekend and catapulted herself oh, off. Oh, my goodness. So, fabulous skirts can be a oh, pain no. with wheels. It's my learning point. But... <laughs> I'm going to put it on my action <laughs> but fabulous plan. Skirts. <laughs> fabulous skirts oh, are fabulous, nevertheless. So there we go. <laughs> so fantastic. Have you got the, the Red World calendar there? <laughs> Um, I do. So, yes, it's another busy month. And um, the first thing I wanted to say is if you have a GPCPD subscription, 
go and test our beta site of the new version of Redwell Knowledge. It's available now. You can link straight through to it from your GPCPD account and send us some feedback and tell us what you think because we're just putting the final touches on the search functionality and how you can filter articles. All of the Redwell 900 plus content is there. So we'd love to know what you think. Um, What else is going on this month? Um, We did a fantastic webinar about adult cerebral palsy last night, which is completely free. And you can sign up for on-demand access to that now. And again, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in the pearls in a minute, aren't we? And yes, um, there's a chance to join our lovely women's health team doing their three-hour contraception course this month. Um, And yeah, our authors are super, super busy right now, um, just finishing off stuff for the next season of GP Update. So sneaky peek, we're going to be looking at lipids, pollen food syndrome, migraine, hoarding and head injuries and lots, Mm -hmm. lots more besides. So that's why they're all ready for a holiday. There's a a lot of last minute tapping at the T-board. So yeah. Good stuff. And, um, and we'll all find out soon what, what we're going to be filming for the new courses as well. So that's all very exciting. Yeah, absolutely exciting. <laughs> cool. So thank you for that. And um, let's now just quickly before we move on to the, the, the final two pearls. Um, as we were talking earlier about holidays and I've just been to the beach and recorded the sound of the sea, it gave me an idea. Now, we all know that when we're relaxed, we have increased focus and concentration and improved memory and attention spans. So we're going to tap into that now. So I want you to really visualize being down on the beach. Close your eyes, but only if it's safe to do so. If you're out for a run or you're driving, then clearly it's not safe to close your eyes. Uh, And you're just going to have to do what we term primary care, which means doing the best you can under the circumstances. So here we go. The sun is shining and you can hear the waves crashing. The sky is beautifully blue. There's not a cloud in the sky and you can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. Now I'm going to bring you a drink of your choice in a second. And we all like nibbles when we have a drink, but I know that you want to learn something too. So these aren't any old nibbles. These are knowledge nibbles, little bite-sized chunks of learning, which you will absorb effortlessly whilst that you relax by the sea here. Now, our wonderful delegates have already chosen these knowledge nipples and they've chosen them for you because at the end of our courses, we ask them to tell us the biggest or most important thing that they've learned that they want everybody else to know, to shout from the rooftops. So I thought what we could do is just briefly a bit of CPD by the sea, or we could um, call it um, extend the reach of the teach from the beach. Um, So shall we have a go at that? (laughs) Let's do it. So here's your lovely, cool drink that you've chosen. Listen to the relaxing waves, and here are your knowledge nibbles. Here's your first one. Check eosinophils for COPD. And your second one. Follow up women with elevated CA125 who have a normal gynae assessment to ensure exclusion of other cancers. So just to flesh those out a little bit more... Eosinophils are the new big thing in COPD as eosinophil counts predict the effectiveness of inhaled corticosteroids. The GOLD 2023 guidance tells us that in patients with an eosinophil count of less than 0.1, they are likely to have little or no benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. Patients who have an eosinophil count of 0.3 or more are most likely to benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. So that's, that's that one. And then just a bit, a bit of flesh on the, the second knowledge nibble. In our ovarian cancer article, it says that overall in women with a raised CA125 of 35 or more, 10% were diagnosed with ovarian cancer. 12% were diagnosed with another cancer, most commonly lung, pancreas, gastrointestinal, breast or uterus. So that's why our delegate was saying, follow up women with elevated CA125 who have a normal gynae assessment to ensure exclusion of other cancers. If you want to know more about any of those, then have a look on GPCPD, soon to become Red Whale Knowledge, or come on a course. Brilliant. How was that? Is that okay? Oh, you've made me wish I was on the beach now, Nick. (laughs) Right then. So now we're nice and relaxed. Shall we go on to the next couple of pearls? Yeah, so 
The next one is the one that made me smile this month. And this was um, the pearl about cerebral palsy in adults. And the reason it made me smile is because we've had the real privilege and delight to work with a really small charity called Up Movement. And the purpose of their charity is to advocate for adults with cerebral palsy. Their founder is a lady called Emma, who used to be a speech and language therapist. And she is an adult who also has cerebral palsy. And, you know, there's a lot imperfect about our health service at the moment. That will not come as a surprise to anybody. And we're all aware that there are lots of people who have real significant health need who are falling through the cracks. And one group that that is a big issue for is adults with cerebral palsy, because even though this is a lifelong neurological condition and the original brain injury is stable, the impact of that isn't. And what really shocked me, and and I don't know if this comes as a surprise to you, is that children with cerebral palsy often have intensive multidisciplinary support right through their childhood. And then at 18, more than a third of them are completely discharged with no further follow-up because there are no pathways in place to continue to support those adults. And when the NICE guidelines on adult cerebral palsy came out in 2019, they suggested that we should consider offering an annual review to adults with cerebral palsy who weren't being followed up in secondary care. And I suspect, and I think we know from the CP community, that often that isn't happening. Yes, I I have to say, I wasn't surprised when I read that there wasn't a service provision. Um, No. But but I was also quite saddened to read that, the fact that the third of patients are discharged. Yeah, it is really difficult because, you know, there's that additional thing that because they've had so much of their care in paediatric services as children, many haven't formed a relationship with their GP team. And so it really does feel for them like they do fall off a cliff in terms of medical support. And the other thing I learned from this pearl and from the NICE guidelines and from looking at the evidence behind it is in fact, adults with cerebral palsy are at increased risk compared with the background population of quite a wide range of long-term conditions and particularly osteoporosis, osteoarthritis and falls. And the significance of that is that for many of those third of adults who are discharged, they are functioning pretty independently in the community and often Um, working. But as they get older, the impact of the neuromuscular changes and the arthritis and falls can start to have a significant impact on their ability to continue to work. And that might be the first way they present to us that they're having difficulties at work. Fatigue, pain can also be problematic. And so if we are able to work alongside them to think about and address those challenges in the same way we would for anybody who came to see us with those things, we can actually make really quite a big difference potentially to their future quality of life and independence. And it's a case of, at the moment, problem solving and trying to find pathways that people can use because it's a massive postcode lottery at the moment as to whether adults with CP who are not under continuing hospital follow-up can access those services, things like community neurology, physiotherapy, and that sort of thing. And I think with conditions like cerebral palsy, often there's this thing called diagnostic overshadowing, isn't there? Whereby clinicians and also the patient themselves will often put things down to their underlying condition when actually it could be something, it it wouldn't be related to it, if that makes sense. So things like osteoarthritis may or may not be related to it. And we shouldn't just put it down to the cerebral palsy. We should be sort of thinking a bit further. And I also know that the the issue of fatigue is quite a a thing for the cerebral palsy community because I don't feel that that's dealt with particularly well by the medical establishment. Yeah, I think I think both those things are right. The diagnostic overshadowing is a real challenge. And of course, um, because cerebral palsy itself isn't treatable, having this assumption that everything might be related to the cerebral palsy isn't helpful. Whereas even if the osteoarthritis is related to 
abnormal gait and spasticity and the increased strain on joints at a younger age, there may be lots of things that can be done to help support that in terms of pain management and gait support, different assistive devices, physiotherapy. So, yeah, it, it's really important not to sort of get into a therapeutic nihilism zone, as it were. And yes, fatigue, it is difficult to manage, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it really is. I, th I think it's it's one of those consultations that, you know, in fact, I can see why the community feel it's not, it doesn't, it's perceived not to be well managed because actually it is something we do find difficult to manage. But um, it doesn't mean that, you know, an empathetic therapeutic relationship isn't a helpful thing to at least just, you know, problem solve alongside these patients. And in the, the kind of the, the pragmatic sort of world that we, we work in and we live in, where we are faced with the fact that adult services for cerebral palsy are very thin on the ground, are there any kind of clever workarounds yeah. that we can use to help our patients in this kind of situation? Yes. Yeah, so this all comes down to knowing the tricksy things you can do in your area. And, and, and this is very low. You know, I, I can't sit here from where... I work and practice in Cambridge and say what might be possible in Manchester or in Guildford, but it's thinking a bit laterally. So we know in some areas, um, geratology services will see adults with cerebral palsy who are not eligible for ongoing follow-up, even if they don't meet age criteria, because often a multi-professional holistic assessment of things like falls can be really useful. So that might be one avenue you might want to consider. Um, if there is a community neurology or a neuro rehab team in your area, even if officially when you look at their referral guidelines, cerebral palsy isn't one of the dot points that says can, you know, can tick the box, can press go, might still be worth trying that and explaining on the referral why you want to use that service. And again, physiotherapy, just being very clear if we do refer to physio, what we're trying to address. Um, all of those things are sort of pathways we can pursue. Um, and I know at the same time, there's a lot of lobbying at the moment going on for the provision of services, for the funding of services, because it does feel that for a lifelong condition, there should be pathways that in primary care we can refer patients back to if they're struggling and need that help. And UpMovement have given us a resource which can be filled out before a clinical review, haven't they? Yeah, so they've recognising that there's quite a lot of commonality between the challenges that lots of adults in the CP community have. They've created a pro forma that um, people can look at and fill in before attending any medical appointments, including primary care ones. So it just helps to delineate what the key areas of challenge are. And I think that helps us in sort of time-pressed consultations. So there's a link to that resource in the Pearl, in the useful resources at the end of the box. You might find it useful to look at that and consider whether that's something you might want to share if you do have any adult patients um, on your list at your practice. And what I found reassuring about reading this pearl was the fact that it's it's not about coming up with all the answers um, in that no. um, it, it's about navigating the maze together and sharing those problems and saying, this is where we're at. This is what's available to us. How can we work together to make things better for you? Yeah, we just have to work in that messy, muddy, realistic framework at the moment, don't we? And yeah, yeah and I think, exactly. you know, in the webinar last night, they worked through five different sort of fairly typical primary care presentations. So it was a case-based webinar. And actually, as a team at Redwell, we've learned loads from this. So if you want an hour of free CPD on something you probably won't ever get taught about anywhere else, do sign up for the webinar and do share with your primary care team, you know, particularly if you've got first contact physios, social prescribers, you know, people who might be able to provide you with some support in supporting this group of patients. Thank you. And that is the end of that poll. So if we move on to our final poll. 
And this one was termed antidepressants help or harm. And when we released the poll, we said, and predictably the answer is not straightforward. A BBC Panorama documentary, The Antidepressant Story, aired on Monday the 19th of June 2023 and told us that one in seven adults in the UK are taking antidepressants and a quarter of people taking antidepressants have been taking them for five years or more. And then cue all the newspaper headlines related to that. Um, So this was quite a big documentary, wasn't it? It was, and it, it got a lot of coverage, as you say, in the, the media and the news the following day and on social media. Um, and, you know, this is the one this week that I've badged as the one that made me unsure because, of course, we know in real life clinical practice that antidepressants make a huge difference for some of our patients and for some of us as clinicians. We also know that sometimes we prescribe them more than we would wish to because there are gaps in provision of psychological services. So there's a lot of stuff here. And the article we shared, um, I sort of want to say, sorry, but not sorry. It was a long article. There was a lot there. And I think great for AKT prep or for those working towards a prescribing qualification because it covered really all the big bases around antidepressants. So how to choose them, if you're going to use them, how to start them, troubleshooting side effects, and then how to taper and stop and tackle withdrawal symptoms. So Nick, what were your takeaways from this one? Well, having watched the documentary, I remember Mm. thinking it felt like watching an episode of Dope Sick, which we've talked about together before. Um, And I kept on thinking, oh my goodness, are they is this the beginning of something? Um, And they talked a lot about the um, withdrawal symptoms and about coming off the medication, about how difficult Mm. that was and about how that's only come through in the last um, few years. And what I found really powerful was when the former president of the Royal College of of Psychiatrists actually said, we got it wrong. I'm sorry that we got it wrong. And then she did things to to make that better and to to kind of address that and she commissioned a a study into into the withdrawal effects um and there were some statements that were released the royal college of psychiatrists released a statement um about the panorama program and we can put a link to that in the show notes and they flagged up the fact that in some cases long-term antidepressants should be considered for patients who've got recurrent depression and repeated severe relapses after stopping antidepressants Um, and also they flagged up their resource which is also featured in the documentary about how to come off and withdraw from antidepressants and also there was an, an rcgp response to the panorama program as well and they talked about the fact that if it's appropriate for patients to continue with antidepressants we should schedule ongoing medication reviews to explore whether there are opportunities to reduce dosages or to stop taking medication altogether and i think i mean i hope that we were felt we were reassured by that in that we are doing medication reviews and we're reviewing our patients regularly who are on long-term antidepressants um but equally we have the tools now with the pearl to look at what they're on why they're on it um things like duration of medication is clarified in that as well isn't it so i think that was that was very interesting to do as well yeah absolutely i think the two sort of key things in the documentary that made me think of dope sick was that in fact in terms of long-term studies of people taking antidepressants for years and years we don't have any research data that tells us about that. Most of the studies were pretty short term. And then the other thing that reminded me of it was the whole sort of serotonin hypothesis and that depression was due to low levels of serotonin in the brain. Taking antidepressants would boost your levels of serotonin. And that's very much what the medical profession was taught, certainly when I was at medical school. And, and that mm-hmm. was how these drugs worked. And, you know, very plausible, easy to explain to patients, but actually subsequently hasn't been shown to be the case and, and and actually don't really know how antidepressants work. But some of the key takeaways for me from our pearl were two things I wanted to pick up on really were about when should we stop and what actually is antidepressant withdrawal. So in terms of when we should stop and, and no, we're talking here about first episodes of these mental health conditions, not as you talked about recurrent and complex episodes. So for people with depression, we should, when we start an antidepressant, we should talk about aiming to stop it six months after the person feels better. 
So not six months after starting, but six months after they are feeling better. For anxiety disorders, it's a bit more complicated. So for generalised anxiety disorder, we should continue it for at least 12 months um, because the risk of relapse is higher if we stop it before that. And then for OCD and body dysmorphic disorder, people with those conditions should carry on for 12 months after symptom remission. So potentially even a little bit longer. So that's the best evidence we have for duration of use for those conditions. Recurrent episodes is more complicated and are more individualised decisions needed. And there's lots of information on that in, for example, our depression article in the online handbook. But I was really interested to read a bit more about withdrawal because I remember being taught on my psychiatry placement that you don't get withdrawal from antidepressants. And of course, as you said, you know, that's the big change in the last few years because patients always said they felt like they were getting symptoms as a result of coming off. And I think there is now a body of evidence to back that up. And, you know, going back to the opiate analogy, it's important to say withdrawal isn't addiction. So it's important that we're clear about that to communicate to patients because we don't want them to be scared and suddenly stop an antidepressant if it's helping them and actually they haven't completed that initial course of treatment. Um, But the interesting thing is that withdrawal symptoms can mimic a relapse of depression. So a really useful learning point from the Pearl for me was if we're trying to tease out is this a relapse or is this a withdrawal? Timeline is useful to us. So typically withdrawal symptoms will come on within days of reducing the dose. Whereas if it's a relapse, that's going to be typically weeks or months after starting to reduce the dose. So that really helps guide us because that changes what we do. Um, And also if some of the main symptoms are kind of sensory disturbance, muscle pain, nausea, they don't usually come with a relapse of the depression. So those things I thought were quite useful. And if people are getting those withdrawals and we do restart the antidepressants so that we can taper them more slowly, that should give really quick relief of those withdrawal symptoms. Whereas if it's a relapse, in the same way as when you start an antidepressant, we wouldn't expect to see that for a few weeks. Interestingly, with the the documentary, when the Royal College of Psychiatrists released their statement, they did it on social media as well. So it was on Twitter. And before I'd seen the documentary, I I looked at the responses from people reacting to the Royal College. And I was expecting it to be full of clinicians saying, oh, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um, But it wasn't. It was full of people um, who had had bad experiences with antidepressants and were quite venomous in in their sort of responses, understandably so. And and when you watch the documentary, there was a large section on post-SSRI sexual dysfunction or PSSD. Um, And in the poll, we actually um, we talk about um, about sexual dysfunction and we talk about the fact that metazapine may be helpful for patients who experience sexual problems on the drugs. But also, I think it's important for us to explore that with our patients because I think this is something that we've known about but haven't really explored too much because maybe we were under the impression it wasn't such a big thing. Yeah, and I think certainly now it's, you know, as ever, when the media covers something like this in a big way, I think we're much more likely to get calls about it. And also when we're discussing medications, doing medication reviews, patients being both more questioning, but also more receptive, perhaps, to considering tapering and reducing their antidepressants when historically they might not have been. So, you know, seeing the glass half full, we can use this as an opportunity, perhaps, to explore other strategies for supporting good mental health as well. So, Nick, I just wonder, do you feel confident about how to taper antidepressants? Not really. In the past, you might have played it by ear with a patient and been in regular contact with them and told them to kind of reduce the dose steadily and and contact you if there are problems. But um, yeah, some stronger guidance on that would be much appreciated. Yeah, I think, interestingly, the NICE guideline was very light on the specifics of how you taper them down. But there was actually a really good BJGP review on this not all that long ago, and we've included a summary. But essentially, go slow you know, 25 to 50% stepwise reductions every one to two weeks. And if the person's getting withdrawal symptoms, despite that, we actually might need to slow down a little bit further to even five to 10% reductions and increasing the gap between those. You know, most people 
will settle with their withdrawal symptoms within one to two weeks. So we can be reassuring, but for that small number who don't, a slow reduction, we might have to use liquid versions of the antidepressants to support that. So I thought that was interesting and helped me feel a bit more confident about what to do there. Yeah, and the top tip is using the liquid ones as well, because that can be really helpful, just to, particularly when you're really getting yeah. down to the, the last sort of bits and pieces. Um, and I, I thought, just to wrap up on this, that um, I was reassured by the fact that, A, we're having the conversations about many parts of this now, particularly the sexual dysfunction bit. So hopefully people won't suffer in silence anymore. And also we know what to do. So we've got other options up, up our sleeves. But also the fact that the, the latest guidelines are much less about prescribing antidepressants. So hopefully going forwards, this won't be so much of an issue. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all those things. Excellent. So that is the end of The Final Pearl. We've just got time for some primary care superheroes. So here we go. And Catherine says that she'd like to nominate Mina Gasparo. She works at St. James Medical Practice in Walthamstow in London as part of the admin team. She's hands down one of the best colleagues I've ever had. She's incredibly hardworking, diligent and gives her all to the job. She's wonderful with patients and their relatives and goes above and beyond to help others. So big up to Mina. Thank you, Catherine. And then moving on to Jack. He says that Helen Brown and her team of children's social prescribers that serve the Ashford Rural PCN he says they're a super team really help us out with their children and, and all their social problems so thank you for that and then we've got uh, Fiona she's nominating nurse Emma Pierce at North Paddesley Surgery in Hampshire Emma knows her patients so well that when a gentleman didn't turn up for his routine injection she called him to make sure that he was okay and this as this was very unlike him it turned out that he was confused and got admitted for a few weeks with sepsis. So well done, Emma. And thank you for all your nominations. And please do send in your nomination for your primary care superhero. And our contact details are coming up in a few minutes with Caroline. Before we go, um, I just got the timing. So it took me uh, eight minutes and 10 seconds to read the IUS pearl, six minutes, 31 seconds for diabetes and frailty, adult cerebral palsy, 18 minutes, 44 seconds and antidepressants and that took me 19 minutes and 20 seconds all the resources you need are in the show notes and all the links are in the show description on your preferred podcasting platform and if you want to know how to contact us either by email or on social media you'll also find those links in the show notes as well and the other thing that you can do if you click on the link in the bio in our social media pages is to leave us a voice message telling us about anything that you found helpful or you'd like for us to cover in the future so we've just got time for a few take action points. So regarding the intrauterine system, how can women access the IUS in your practice or PCN patch? And for diabetes and frailty, remember that double whammy of hypo risk and also what's this person's health status and what do they want? For adult cerebral palsy, you can sign up for our webinar, which is completely free and is available now. And last but not least, antidepressants and withdrawal. So for me, my main take action is start to talk about tapering at initiation, talk about withdrawal and the difference between this and relapse so that we can all feel more confident in recognising it and tapering the medication. So I'm Caroline Green. And I'm Nick Kendrew. Until next time, remember to keep Redwell Knowledge open on your desktop at work so we're with you when you need some extra information or reassurance. Take care of yourself and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.